Father, here we are, and in the silence of our own hearts right now, we just want to ask that you would speak to us, that you would reveal a more beautiful picture of how you love us. And Father, help us not just to see your love and walk away unchanged, but help us to let it sink down into the core of our being and to change who we are. Lord, touch our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It was the first for my parents, the first parent-teacher conference for little Zach, who was in first grade. I was going to Blue Mountain Elementary School, and Mrs. Galambus was my teacher, and so she asked for my mom and dad to come in and sit down with her, and she began to talk with my parents and saying, you know, Zach's doing fine with his schoolwork. Zach's keeping up in this area and things are going fine with this. And then finally she got down. You know how teachers sometimes hold out on the parents. And finally she got to, but there is one thing that's really bothering me. Zach is getting the entire classroom competing. My parents said, what do you mean? What are you, what are you talking about? Well, Everything. If it's a math assignment, Zach will get everybody to race to get it done, and then he'll run to the front of the room and dive to put his paper in before everybody else. He always has to be the first one in absolutely everything we're doing. I don't know how to stop it. I don't know how to get across to him that he doesn't always have to be first. It can make things awkward when somebody always wants to be first, when somebody always wants to be the best, can it? It can be a problem when somebody's always putting themselves first, when they always have themselves as a priority. It's one thing for a first grader, but when that carries on into your life and and you get further and further into life and the only thing you can think about is yourself and getting your things straight and your things first becomes a problem. And you can imagine that day. It was a big problem in the room because these were all grown men in the room. And as they were there around the table, they were disputing who was going to be first who would be the first in Jesus kingdom who was who was going to be the greatest who in fact even as they walked into the room the question was who's going to sit right next to Jesus who could be the closest to Jesus because whoever's on his left and his right those are the most important positions and so you can imagine as they're elbowing each other out of the way trying to get to that favored position. How does Jesus handle a group of 12 men who can't get over themselves? Who he has dealt with them for three and a half years. He's walked with them. He's tried to help them see that he didn't even come to be served, but to serve. That's what he told them in Mark chapter 10. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. But they didn't get it. They kept thinking about his kingdom and how his kingdom was coming and they just wanted to be first. Go with me to John chapter 13. Jesus, the master teacher, as he nears the end of his influence on this planet with these 12 men, has something special for them. He's got something that he wants to teach them and he does it in a phenomenal way. Luke cha- uh, John chapter 13 Starting in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, he understands that he is going to the cross. He's going to, to bear their sins. He's going all the way, making the ultimate sacrifice. When he knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world 
to the Father. Don't miss this next line. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the telos, the Greek says. To the, to the uttermost, completely. He loved them radically and completely to the very end. So how does, how does Jesus do this? In this moment, in this room, with all of this tension of these men who want to be first. That's what it tells us in Luke chapter 22, verse 24, about this upper room experience that the disciples were disputing among themselves, saying, which of them is going to be the greatest? So Jesus is looking at this room filled with disciples that he loves, and he's been loving. How does he communicate what love really is? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love does not seek its own. And so he wants to communicate to them that love isn't about you It's about the people around you. How does he get this across? And it gets even worse. Verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil having... Well, it says supper being ended. The the other manuscripts, it's possible that it's while the supper is going on. We don't know for sure. But basically, during this time in the upper room, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Not only are they arguing about who's going to be first, but there is a person there who wants... To betray Jesus. There's a person there who's out to get Jesus, who is so selfish that he has sold Jesus for a pittance, the price of a slave. Sitting at the table, and the interesting thing is that he is, if you read the gospel accounts of the Last Supper, he is likely the one sitting on the left side of Jesus, which as they recline at the table, the table would be there and they would all be kind of leaning on their their left arm up against the table. They didn't have chairs like we have today, but they had this table there and they're all kind of reclining up against the table on their left sides, which meant the one behind you was somebody that you had to really trust. That was a very important position. We know that John, from later in Luke, in John chapter 13, that John was on the right side, that he leaned into Jesus' bosom to ask him who it was that was going to betray him. It tells us that later in John chapter 12, so in 13. So Judas was the one that Jesus, in order to identify him, he dipped with him the bread in the cup. So in order to do that, he would have had to have been probably the person right next to him. And Desire of Ages also points that out. So here he has Judas right next to him, pressed up against him, and Judas is ready to betray him. Selfishness of selfishness, right? He's going to put his own interests for a few pieces of silver above the life of Jesus, hoping that somehow this will inspire Jesus, motivate Jesus to set up his own kingdom. What do you do in a moment like this? Last summer when Matt and I were on our backpacking trip, you know, there's something about after having hiked for 15, 20 miles with a heavy pack on to take your shoes off and to put them into some cold water. You may have experienced that before. It's a refreshing feeling to get your feet washed. Here they are. They've, they've had a long day. They've had a long journey. Things are feeling awkward. Things are not comfortable And of all the things that Jesus could possibly choose to do in this moment, of how he could have stood up and said, look, you guys, stop acting like animals. Stop being selfish. He could have rebuked them. He could have said a million different things to them. But in this moment, what Jesus did was to grab a basin and a towel and to do the work that 
not even a Jewish servant would do. Only a Gentile slave was allowed to wash people's feet. And Jesus, as he looked at his miserable disciples, he said, I just want to help them. I just want to, what could I possibly do to make their lives better right now? How could I possibly teach them to have an unselfish love in their hearts? And so he took a towel. He took a basin. Can you imagine? We know that Peter was later on, as we'll discover in a moment, so likely he started from left and went around the table this way, meaning whose feet did he wash first? Judas. Judas got the honor. Judas, the one who was ready to betray him. Judas, who was throughout his ministry stealing from the money bag. Jesus knew all of this. Jesus knew who Judas was. Why didn't he stand up and say, Judas, what are you doing? You are going to betray me tonight. You've been stealing from us. Why don't you just get out of here? But instead, he bends down. He gets a towel and a basin. And he washes the dust off of Judas' toes. He dries them with a towel, wanting Judas to be a little more comfortable there for his last supper with Jesus. Hoping that that maybe this will communicate his love to Judas in a way that just maybe, maybe Judas will see his love and, and turn back from his decision to betray him. Jesus desperately wanted to get through to Judas. So he radically displayed his love in just practically loving Judas. So we keep reading in the story. He finally gets to Peter, verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter. He's probably getting all the way around the table because Peter was the one who talked to John. So Peter was probably right after John around the table. So he's gone all the way around and he finally gets to Simon Peter. Only John's left. Then he comes to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Verse 8, Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Leave it to Peter. (laughs) Leave it to Peter to have some sort of outburst. You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now there is so much symbolism in the foot washing. There's so much that we can look at about the cleansing of our hearts that takes place in communion. But today, just think about the practicality of what Jesus is doing. Jesus wants to wash the dust off of Peter's toes. Jesus wants to communicate to Peter that he loves him radically, that that he wants for him to experience happiness and joy in his life, that, that he wants for him to allow God to serve him. And Jesus is revealing what the Father is like in the next chapter, John chapter 14, when when Philip says, show us the Father and it's enough for you. Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you don't know me? He's only revealing that this is who God is. The disciples are so confused about who God is. They think that it's about an earthly kingdom that that God is going to set up and he's going to defeat the Romans and he's going to, to, to save only the children of Abraham. And Jesus is trying to reveal this is what God's about. 
He's about loving you radically. He's about caring for the needs in your life. He's about being there for you when you go through the difficult times. He wants for your life to be blessed. This is how Jesus tries to communicate to the disciples his incredible love. This is how he loves them to the end. This is how he reveals his love. And he tells Peter, if you don't allow this to take place, if you don't allow me to be the God who cares for the details of your life, if you're too proud for that, if you're too good for that, I'm sorry, but you can't have any part with me. I mean, Jesus had basically said something similar to that in Matthew chapter 18 when he said, unless you humble yourself like this little child, the child that Mark tells us he was holding in his arms, unless you humble yourself like this child, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Stop worrying about who's the greatest. If you won't let me wash your toes, you can't have any part with me. Stop thinking about whether you can sit on my right hand or my left. You're too worried about the stuff of this world. You're anxious about so many things. But what you need to do is to let me love you. And when you do, it's going to radically change your life. Jesus goes on to reveal that after he washes Peter's feet in verse 13. He says, you call me... Teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. This is why, before communion service, we go through the practice of washing each other's feet, but it can become just a ritual. If we forget the meaning of it, if we forget the beauty of it, that it's to represent Jesus loving his disciples to the end. It's to represent us entering into the same unselfish service for other people, of watching out for their needs above our own. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That word blessed, it's the same from the, the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, is makarios. Blessed or happy, you'll see that in the King James Version, happy are you if you do these things. You're going to be happy if you, if you follow the same life of unselfish love in giving to others. That's why Jesus said it's, it's more blessed. It's, it's happier to give than to receive. To live this way is the most fulfilling possible thing in your life. He only wants what's best for the disciples. Then he goes on to reveal to them that Judas is going to betray them, betray him. And in verse 27, he tells Judas to go out and do what he's going to do quickly, and no one understands what he's doing. Verse 29, for some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. It was dark for, for Judas. Judas, who kept hardening his heart, who kept rejecting that love, who refused to humble himself and to honestly be a disciple of Jesus. Then Jesus launches into something beautiful, something powerful for our lives today. Because it's not just about how Jesus loves us, but it's about how that love radically changes who we are if we will allow it to. 
Judas didn't let it and he walked out and it was darkness for him. But Jesus wants for you and I to walk in the light. He wants for us to have the experience of the 11 disciples who were radically changed by that love. They didn't get it at first, but as it began to sink in and to permeate into their selfish hearts, it changed everything. To the place where in Acts, it says that nobody was lacking anything because everybody was looking out for each other. And the gospel was exploding because people looked at these Christians and they said, this is what the love of God is all about. They honestly, unselfishly love. They're not worried more about themselves than about others. They are following Jesus. They have been with Jesus. Jesus tries to reveal this to them in verse 31. He says, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children. uses this affectionate term that he hasn't used up to that place in the book of John. Little children. I will be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. And then verse 34. Telling them that he's leaving. He's not going to be there so that they can follow him anymore. He wants to give them one final instruction, this crucial instruction that is to supersede all others. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. Love people the way that I love you. Love them all along the way. Love them to the uttermost. Love them to the end. Love them to the place where you're willing to wash off their selfish toes. Where you're willing to to do whatever it takes to help them before you help yourself. When you open the door for them because you want for them to be able to get in there first. When you let somebody go ahead of you in line. When you prioritize the needs of your family above your own needs. When you unselfishly love the people at work, this is what I'm talking about. It was a new commandment because up until that point, they had what the Old Testament had said, that you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. But now Jesus is revealing to them through the foot washing and through the cross a radical love that supersedes anything they've ever seen before. And he wants them to know that this isn't just to put it on display for you. But this is so that that same radical love can dwell in your heart and that you can love the world around you just like that. Verse 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you love people like this, the entire world will recognize that you are my disciples. That's what he wants for us. So how do you and I experience this love in our lives? How do we have an unselfish heart? Because honestly, we all recognize, don't we, that it would be better to live unselfishly. We wish that we didn't have the selfish tendencies that we do. This world would be a far better place if we lived in a world where people watched out for others' needs above their own. I believe the key is at the beginning of this chapter when it says that Jesus knew that all things had been given into his hands, that he was coming from God and that he was going back to God. Jesus had a recognition of all that had been given to him. He had a recognition of the love of God in his life. As God on earth, he was taking up human form and he experienced that which you and I can also experience. Psalm 84 verse 11 says that the Lord God is a sun and shield to us. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
God didn't just give all things to Jesus, but he's also given all things to us. And this has a power when it comes to our pride, when it comes to our selfishness. This can motivate humility in our hearts like nothing else can. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 with me. Fascinating place where Paul is talking to the Corinthians who are arguing about whether they were taught by Apollos or Paul or Peter. They're arguing about which is most valuable. And in, in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 21 says, Therefore let no one boast in men. Stop having this pride issue. And how are you going to stop having this pride issue? Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. You don't need to boast in people. You don't need to boast in anything except for what God has given you. Goes on to say, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. You see all the things that are encapsulated in that? Whether this world or life or death or things present or things to come, God has given you all things. All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Is that too good to be true? Has God really given us? All things. If you doubt it, look back at Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8, one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible. Verse 28, Paul reveals how God can use all things for our benefit. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. God has given all things into your life and He causes all the things that happen into your, in your life. He works those things around for your benefit when you're loving God, when you're surrendered to God. Even the trials in your life, God can take those and He can turn them into beautiful things in your life. Verse 20, 29, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. His goal for you and I is to have the same love in us, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Now verse 32, don't miss this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? Friends, Jesus came and died for you. And God sent his only son for you. He's already given you the greatest gift in the universe. He will gladly give you anything else that you need in your life in order to live a life for Him. He will gladly give you all things. He's already sacrificed Himself. He's already made it known on the cross that He values your existence more than His own existence. That He would rather see you live eternally than for Himself to live eternally. That's what Jesus said on the cross, and that's the type of love that He wants to instill in our own hearts. I love what it says in the Bible commentary, the fifth Volume, page 1139. Humility is an active principle growing out of a thorough consciousness of God's great love and will always show itself 
by the way in which it works. Humility in our lives. The humility that Jesus had to be able to care more about the needs of others. To be able to to bend down and wash the dust off of somebody's toes so that they would have a better day. To be able to do that when, when you're facing the sins of the world being laid on you. When you're facing the cross, you've got a lot of things on your mind, but to still be looking out for the interests of others above yourself. Jesus was able to do that because he knew that all things were given to him. That he came from God and he was going to God. And you can do it too because you can know that God gave his son for you. And if he gave his son for you, how will he not freely give you all things? This is an incredibly powerful thing when it comes to the selfishness in our lives. When we recognize God's love for us and that he will gladly fulfill our every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus, this has a power to neutralize the selfishness in our hearts like nothing else does. This couple weeks ago in Bangkok, Thailand, a man entered into a police station. You may have seen the video. It's gone somewhat viral on social media. He entered the police station with a knife and he was going in to attack a police officer. And as he went in, Officer Anarut Mali met him there. And you see there in the picture, he's actually sitting down. He could have drawn his gun at this point and pointed it at the attacker, but instead he sits down and he begins to talk to this angry person with a knife who's trying to attack him. As he sits there and he continues to talk with him, the man begins to drop the knife a little bit, and pretty soon, Anrut gets up and he walks towards the man. He grabs the knife from the man and tosses the knife aside and gives the man a big hug. That's what love can do in an intense situation. He later, in an interview, told people, he said, well, He'd been through a really rough time. He lost his job as a musician. He'd been working as a security guard. Somebody had stolen his guitar. He'd just been through a rough time. And so I was just telling him how I cared what he was going through, that, that I would get him another guitar, that we could, we could go out for a meal together. Friends, this world will be radically changed when we love it like Jesus loved it. When we're willing rather than to pull the gun and to do what is rightfully our responsibility we feel in in taking an eye for an eye. But instead, we wash each other's feet. We watch out for the needs of others. We notice when our our neighbor's not able to mow their lawn because they've been sick for a couple weeks and we go over and mow their lawn for them. We notice when the person at work is falling behind in their work and rather than getting so frustrated that they're so incompetent, we walk over to their cubicle and say, how could I help you out? How could I help you to be able to do this better? Rather than focused on our own lives, our own needs, and our own problems, Jesus wants, as he reveals his radical love for us, for us to be transformed to have that same unselfish love in our hearts. I believe that's why Jesus bent down and wash the disciples' feet. That's why he started with Judas. He wanted Judas to have the clearest and most beautiful picture of his love. He wanted for Judas to have the greatest opportunity to respond to that love. So the choice for us today is the same that Judas had. Will we respond to that love? Will we respond to the new commandment to love people the way that Jesus loved? To be ready to wash the dust off of their toes? 
That doesn't happen practically, but people get flat tires on the side of the road, and sometimes we're too busy. People go through difficult times in our lives, and we pass by them and we say, hi, how are you doing? But do we really care what they're going through? In my life, I recognize that I'm not able to get past the selfishness that stirs in it unless I let Jesus love sink deep into my heart. Unless I humble myself and allow him to care for me. Like uh, it says in Second Peter chapter 5, in verse 5, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. God cares about the dust between your toes. He cares about the details of your life. And when we finally recognize his loving care in our lives and we get over caring for ourselves, when we recognize that he's given us all things, that we can trust him with our finances, we can trust him with our job, we can trust him with our family, when we accept that in our lives, then we can begin to focus and see and notice the people around us and the stuff that they're going through. Then we can begin to pour some of that same love into the lives of others because he has filled our hearts with his love. That's what Jesus wants for us in these days that we're living in. In the book Heavenly Places, it says a kind, courteous Christian is the most powerful argument that can be produced in favor of the gospel. Be so considerate, so tender, so compassionate that the atmosphere surrounding you will be fragrant with heaven's blessing. This is what the world needs to see. It needs to see an unselfish, radical love for Jesus. I want that, friends. And I recognize that it doesn't stir naturally in my own heart, but it comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. It comes through recognizing the love of Jesus and being changed by that love. So today, as we go from this place to wash each other's feet, I want to challenge you to not just look at it as a symbol, a ritual that we go through, but to be reminded that Jesus did this for you. That Jesus went all the way to the cross for you so that your life could be happy. There's another quote I just want to look at real quick. It talks about the cross. Reviewing Herald, March 8, 1892. The cross of Calvary is an eternal pledge to every one of us that God wants us to be happy, not only in the future life, but in this life. Jesus washed our feet. He went to the cross because he wanted you to experience the peace, the joy that passes all understanding from allowing him to care for you. Remember that as you wash each other's feet. And also make it a time of commitment, of saying, this is the way I'm going to live my life. I'm going to radically love the world around me unselfishly. I'm going to die to my own needs and my own priorities, and I'm going to say, God, it's only about you it's only about loving your creatures from now on. We can only do this as we cast all of our cares on him. We can only take up other people's burdens as we cast our own upon Jesus. I just want to close with a time of prayer just to ask that Jesus would stir this love in our hearts. Father, as we go through this communion service, we just ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit into our hearts, that you would open our eyes to your incredible love and what you are willing to do and washing the disciples' feet, and then we would be reminded that you care for all the details of our lives. Help us to cast all of our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us.
and then help us, having casted our cares upon you, to radically and unselfishly love the world around us in your strength. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.